0: Previously on Rediscovering, Don Bowles, a murder journalist. On Tuesday, March 23rd, 1976, Bowles wrote a story about Kemper Marley. It wasn't really an investigative story. It's what we call in the business a clip job, but it was a story that would change everything.
1: And the thing that got me is one day I drove by the newspaper. You had your car parked across the street on... Second half, the second street. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you were looking at
2: your tires and looking around your car. Mm. And just the way you're looking at it, you know, I had been
1: in there sometime before that. I knew you were spooked. Mm.
0: Bowles told Rademacher that what he saw wasn't unusual. He always took a peek under his car.
1: Uh, as a matter of routine, I always check to see if anybody's been fiddling with it because, uh, you know, I know what I'm up against.
0: in May 1976, just weeks before Bowles' death, there was a roast of the noted humor columnist Irma Bombeck. She was nationally known, appeared on Good Morning America, best-selling author, and she lived in Paradise Valley. Arizona Republic reporter Don Bowles was at the roast. So was Pat McMahon, who was a well-known radio and TV personality. McMahon went up to Bowles and made one of those cracks one might make at a function like this. I said, Don, I'm really glad that you came
1: over and that I could talk to you for just a moment to try my best to pound some kind of sense into that head of yours because you keep picking on all of these lovely business people. Why is it you pick on these folks, you know, instead of just simply writing nice things about some of the nice people? You could say sweet things about them, Don. His answer stayed with me to this day. Because he looked at me and he didn't laugh this time. He said, funny that you should mention that, Pat, because this is my last story about those people. That so I promised my wife that I was going to wrap that part of my career up. And I said something like, no offense, Don, but what else can you do? And I didn't mean to make it sound as if you were limited. And I don't think you're going to go into the, and I said this, into the obits.
0: At that time, in 1976, Bowles wasn't assigned to be an investigative reporter. He was assigned to cover the legislature. In fact, it had been three years since the lawsuits and depositions with the Funk family had wrapped up. His wife, Rosalie, said she doesn't recall him making such a promise to her, that he'd stop writing those types of stories. Though it sounded like she would have welcomed it.
3: Maybe he made a commitment to himself you know, promised to himself, but he didn't come right out and said he, he would promise not to do that. But I did ask him on occasion.
0: You asked him what?
3: If he needed to keep doing that investigative stuff with that, because the, the mafia worried
0: me. People still fed Bull's tips. And, as a curious reporter, he often listened. So it makes sense that he listened when a man he had never met named John Adamson... Pitched him a story. It involved land fraud. It involved famed Senator Barry Goldwater. It involved Representative Sam Steiger who had been a close source of Bowles. It also wasn't true. But Bowles didn't know that when he agreed to meet Adamson. After that meeting, Bowles told an editor about the tale Adamson had told him. He also told his editor he didn't think it was true and that Adamson seemed a shady character, a sleazebag. But Adamson promised to bring documents to their next meeting, and Bowles was curious what Adamson might bring to further spin this story. Adamson set that meeting for June 2nd at the Clarendon Hotel. I'm Richard Rellis, and this is Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist. June 2nd happened to be Don and Rosalie Bulls' wedding anniversary. The couple had planned to celebrate by seeing the movie All the President's Men. Woodward, Bernstein, you're both on the story now. That movie was the dramatic recreation of how two Washington Post reporters methodically exposed the Watergate scandal that led to President Richard Nixon's resignation. Just
1: follow the money. Get out your notebook. There's more.
0: By June, the movie had been out a few months, but the Bulls were going to make a date night out of their anniversary and see it. It started as a routine day. Would
3: have been a Just a normal, morning.
0: typical morning. Getting the kids up, getting the husband up, getting everyone out the door. Rosalie got the kids up, she saw Don off to work, and their daughter Diane off to class. Rosalie also had a meeting scheduled that morning with Diane's teacher
3: about her progress in school and plans for the future, kind of like an IEP today.
0: Don Bowles went off to the Capitol. He covered the action in the Senate that morning. On the agenda of the Finance Committee was a bill about an issue near and dear to his heart. It was a bill dealing with Emprise and the Funk family, the two entities that Bowles had tussled with since 1969. The bill up for debate that morning was designed to break up the monopoly ownership of the state's dog tracks. It was an idea central to Bowles' stories about the dog racing industry. That the Funks and Emprise had a monopoly and should be broken up. The bill would have required them to sell off some of the six tracks they owned within six years. But the bill had its teeth taken out in the committee hearing that morning. Under the bill the Senators passed, the Funks wouldn't have to sell any tracks for nearly a decade. Lawmakers did so to appease the Funk family. Around 11 a.m., Bulls went to the press room on the third floor of the Senate. A man went up there to speak with Bowles about the racing bill. He said Bulls was in a bad mood. Bulls said something about how he had been fighting this thing for years, and how Emprise and the Funks owned the state legislature. He threw up his hands in frustration. I'm washing my hands of the whole thing, he said. He then told the man he had to go. He had a meeting at the Clarendon. The Clarendon was a midtown hotel that was supposed to be a crown jewel when it opened. It quickly became a rent-by-the-week type place. Not a bad spot, just nothing too fancy. I had long thought that the Clarendon was picked because it was a spot where reporters hung out, but that wasn't true. It was likely picked simply because the lobby was a pretty long walk away from the parking lot. Bowles was now driving a new B-210 Datsun, having gotten rid of the Plymouth with a bad wobble in the front. He pulled his Datsun into the lot and parked. He walked past the pool and into the lobby and waited for the man he was supposed to meet, John Adamson. The woman behind the front desk asked him if he was Don Bowles. There was a phone call for him. Bowles took the receiver. It was Adamson. Bowles didn't know this, but Adamson was calling from the Ivanhoe bar a few blocks away on Central Avenue. Adamson told Bowles the meeting was off. Bowles told Adamson that he could find him back at the state capitol later that day if he needed. Bowles hung up and started the walk back to his car. He stopped along the way to talk to a woman and her toddler who were swimming in the Clarendon pool. Bowles said something about the little girl being on her way to becoming quite a swimmer. Bowles got in his car, started it up, and backed out of the parking space. Then, the bomb Adamson had planted under the car, right under the driver's seat where Bowles sat, was detonated by remote control. At the same time, in a nearby office tower, an attorney was dictating notes about a case into a recording machine. In doing so, he happened to capture the distant sound of the explosion.
2: Just for the record, that is a tape that I was dictating in my office at 36:20, North Third Avenue on oh, the second day of June at or about 11:40 in the morning.-
0: That attorney made a copy of that recording for law enforcement. He said he hoped to play it for Bulls. If he ever recovered. I'll well, surely say that little bit. Maybe I'll give it to Don someday if he lives. him hear himself. Although that blast sounded faint on that clip, in real time, it resonated through Midtown Phoenix. A few blocks away, an air conditioning man named Lelon Reed was installing an exhaust fan in a law office. We
2: heard—literally—the
0: uh, building shook. I mean a concussion and
2: this is a brand new sturdy building you know and the whole building just
0: uh, was a shockwave. Reed came out of the building and saw hazy smoke. He said he heard a voice telling him go. He listened to it. He ran to the scene. He entered the parking lot and saw white dots. He also saw a man hanging outside the door. The man was face down. He
2: was backed out at an angle The car door was open, and he was laying outside the car door, face down. His right arm was underneath him, and his left arm was under his head. And as I'm coming across to him,
0: he looked up and said, Help me! Help me! And then collapsed. Reed had a particular set of skills that would prove helpful. He had wanted to be a state trooper. In his training, he learned about cars and explosives. In the parking lot, he quickly assessed that the car wasn't on fire. There was no danger of the gas tank exploding. He didn't have to drag the body away. Also as part of his trooper training, Reed had learned some basic paramedic practices. He had also worked at a hospital and knew a little about anatomy. One lesson he learned, do what you must to stop the bleeding. Reed would do so by turning his belt into a tourniquet. So I took off my belt, straddled him, ran it
2: underneath his uh, hip at the thigh, pulled it up through, laced it through the buckle, and cinched it back, and then tied it off. I stood up, asked for another belt. A white-haired man handed me his. While he was getting it off, Don Bowles started talking, and somebody was at his head, so I said, take down that information, it might be important. Then I turned back and got the belt. And I did the same thing on his left leg. Then
0: he revived. Someone brought out a first aid kit from the hotel. Reed and others used the gauze pads to cover the wounds. Someone else brought out a large beach towel. It was so big, Reed initially thought it was a blanket. Someone tried covering bowls with it. Reed told them no, put it under him, save his face from burning on the hot asphalt. Remember, this was June in Phoenix. At this time, it was almost 100 degrees outside. Bowles kept talking. A woman named Leslie Evett, who had rushed over from a nearby condo building, laid her head on top of Bowles' head. She told him to say what he needed to say. She would listen. In court testimony later, Evett remembered that Bowles told her it was his wedding anniversary. He asked her to get in touch with his wife. He gave Evett his home telephone number, told her to call his wife there. Then Bowles told her something else. He said, Adamson did it.
3: Critically injured, Bowles gasped four words to bystanders. Mafia, m the name of a New York sports concessionaire which once owned a piece of six dog racing tracks here, and John Adamson.
0: Bowles told Evett to please remember what he was telling her. He was not going to make it. Lying on the towel in the hotel parking lot, outside his bombed out car, Bowles also criticized himself. I should have checked my car, he told her. It's my fault.
1: Uh, as a matter of routine, I always check to see if anybody's been fiddling with it because, uh, you know, I know, what I, you know, I know what, what I meant to be. I know you're a I And
0: just the way they here Paramedics arrived four minutes after the explosion. They took over the job of tending to Bulls. Reed and the others who had huddled around Bulls moved back. Reed looked inside the car. The driver's side door was open, the floorboard had been pushed up.
2: So there wasn't a fire in the car, but obviously you've seen pictures of the floorboard, how it peeled up almost like a flower and the seat was pulled up, still attached to the floorboard and and leaned into the back seat.
0: Just to help picture this, the driver's seat was still attached to the floor of the car, but the floor of the car had been pushed up so violently that the driver's seat was flipped back 90 degrees
2: and i don't know whether he was blown out of the car or whether he was blown back
0: into the back seat and then had to crawl out a television camera crew from channel 10 captured the scene
2: after onlookers and news media cleared the area phoenix police homicide bomb and arson squads and officials from the united states treasury department began combing the parking lot and the surrounding area for clues that would tell what kind of explosive device was used Bowles was rushed to St. Joseph's Hospital and listed in very serious condition.
0: In the footage, you can see Bowles' face resting on a golden towel. His light brown hair, almost blonde, is styled in a semi-pompadour fashion. He's wearing a black leisure suit that paramedics would eventually cut off his body. Every so often, Bowles raises his head and appears to say something. Then his head drops again. Reed said it was a challenge for paramedics to load Bowles onto a stretcher. Bodies are usually loaded face up, but medics decided it best to load Bowles as he was, face down. One of the ambulance drivers would remember later that Bulls kept taking off his oxygen mask. He kept talking about the mafia and Emprise.
2: What I ha- heard doesn't make a whole lot of sense. What did you hear? I'd rather not say. Police say Bowles reportedly
0: told... Rosalie, Bowles' wife, had been at her daughter's school for a meeting. She came home to a ringing phone. It was the police.
3: They just said there's been a terrible accident, and Don's been taken to St. Joseph's ER.
0: Rosalie knows that she drove herself to the hospital, but she has no memory of doing so. Once there, police told her what happened.
3: Well, I was shocked. I was just shocked. I had no idea. As I said, I thought it was a car accident of some kind, and then they tell me that it wasn't, that there was a car bomb, and so I didn't, I was just so stressed I couldn't even think
0: Word of the explosion reached the Republic newsroom. Details trickled in. Paul Dean was a columnist at the time, and he was in the newsroom that day.
2: Everybody was in confusion because we had picked up on the police radio this story that a car had exploded and that there was either a legislator or just a press credentials in the windshield. Whose was it, Who who could possibly? Be involved in something like that? Certainly not a legislative reporter. I can remember my reaction when we knew it was done. I just hurled a pen across the newsroom. Uh, no, and I was
0: just furious. At the courthouse, an attorney remembers hearing it crackling across police radio. Uh, it came. It came across police radio, uh, and. There were lots of police
1: officers that we would run into down around the courthouse anyway, and this was getting close to lunchtime. That I found out about it. I was approaching the First Avenue or the uh, the East Court Building at First Avenue and and um, in Jefferson, and uh, we were told that a reporter had been blown up, and we didn't know what the
0: status was, uh, whether he, he had lived or died. Here's how former television news anchor, Mary Jo West, described it.
3: There was a pall, there was a darkness, there was a sadness, and even there was fear that is hard to describe to other people today, once that happened. And Bill Miller,
0: my wonderful former boss, he said, he had a great line, he said, We realized that the investigative stories we were doing were more than just putting
3: on a program. It was serious business. Everything changed.
0: And Pat McGroder, the attorney who knew Bowles. I think the city was shocked. I think they
2: were shocked by what happened to Don Bowles. But they were also shocked that it happened in the middle of the day, in the middle of town. Someone got blown up by a car bomb in Phoenix in the 70s. So, I, I mean, I think everyone was just generally in shock about that for a whole variety of reasons, and
0: disgusted,
2: and scared, and scared
0: a little bit. People talked about the city seeming to lose its innocence that day. Here's Pat McMahon. I just, I remember
1: thinking uh, that couldn't happen here. I really did. I I just, a bombing, I, I, I could somehow imagine somebody with a gun being angry
0: at what somebody wrote. But a bomb in your car, that's mob stuff. Bowles was taken to St. Joseph's Hospital. He wouldn't speak again. Those words he uttered at the crime scene and in the ambulance would be his last. When detectives came to question him the next day, Bowles was intubated. He had a tube down his throat so he could breathe. But he was lucid. He knew why police were there and what they wanted. He was able to nod his head and gesture with his fingers in response to their questions. He identified a photo they had of John Adamson and said yes that was the man he was meeting at the hotel.
3: Phoenix police know Adamson well. He's a man with a criminal record, and police say he has underworld associates. He's a gambler and breeder of racing dogs, friendly with Ned Warren, an Arizona real estate magnate who has been under investigation here for land fraud.
0: Meanwhile, back at the hospital, Don's health spiraled. A Republic executive, Bill Shover, stayed at the hospital through most of the coming days. He would bear witness to Bowles' agonizing end. The doctors amputated his right leg in the days after the bombing. Then, an infection made its way into his right arm. That also required amputation. The infection spread to his left leg. Doctors amputated that one as well. Chauver was witness to all of it. It affected him, and he saw it affect others at the hospital including a nun.
1: The morning he died was a Sunday morning, and <clears throat> he had one arm left. The legs were gone, and this arm was off because he had poison from the, the shrapnel that came up there. That was, that's what killed him. And uh, the nun was standing there and with a nurse, and the nun started crying. She said, Mr. Schober, when they get the person who did this to Don, I hope before they kill him, they take one leg, one arm, another leg before they kill him. And I said, sister? She says, I know I'm not supposed to say that, but I've seen this man writhe in pain. I know he's he's having a terrible, terrible death. She says, it just seemed like justice to do something like that for them.
0: And uh, I'll never forget that nun saying that to me. Rosalie, Bowles' wife, was a nurse, so she had a clear understanding of what was happening.
3: And so they didn't have to tell me a whole lot except basically what they were going to do and why they were going to do it. He was septic by that time from the explosion.
0: Rosalie would stay at the hospital for the next 11 days.
3: I talked to him, but he, he they had him so sedated. You know, of course, I don't know if, if he heard anything or he didn't respond at any rate.
0: She was there when he died.
3: I was in there by his bedside, and... I was with him when he died. They had to come in and pronounce him, of course, but I was there and I told them. I knew what the monitors were, and I called out to the nurses that were there, and uh, but of course there was nothing they could do.
0: The word of Bowles' death spread around the city and the nation. Pat McMahon still thinks about the injustice of it, of a reporter being killed for doing his job. You know, He didn't do
1: anything to you except maybe cause you to be convicted for life because that's the way justice is. Injustice is blowing somebody up.
0: He was a good guy. Inside the hospital, there had been a fierce battle to save the man's life. Outside the hospital, detectives and Republic reporters were investigating. They were trying to figure out who would want Bowles dead and why. A great first clue came from the final words Bowles spoke. The name, John Adamson, the man he was set to meet, but also mafia and empires. That morning, Bowles had covered a legislative hearing about Emprise, the final story he would ever cover—but before then, Bowles hadn't covered Empire and its ties to organized crime for years. Yet those who knew Bowles said he had never really stopped looking at the company and what he thought were its corrupt ways. He never forgot what they had done to him.
3: He did. He did make it a personal crusade, and. And that's why I think it bothered him so much that he didn't feel he was getting the paper's support.
0: Detectives came to speak with Bowles' former colleague, Bill Meek. He had covered all the bitter back and forth legal battles between Bowles and Emprise. But police didn't ask Meek about the Funks or Emprise or about how Bowles felt wronged by those people. Meek had expected those questions. Meek knew how deeply the wiretapping battle with Emprise and the Funks had affected Bowles. He understood why Bulls would mention Emprise as he lay injured on the asphalt. Clearly that's what he was thinking about. If he thought he was going to come to harm, that was the direction it was gonna come from, he thought. But, Meek said, it didn't seem like many other people made that connection, or understood why Bulls would be thinking about Emprise. Bulls might have believed he was killed because long ago he had crossed the Mafia and Emprise. He didn't seem to think that his killing might have to do with the stories he wrote, that cost Kemper Marley a seat on the Arizona Racing Commission. But that's the path investigators would follow. It was the path Bowles put them on by repeatedly saying the name of John Adamson. And that's the path we'll follow next time. Next time on Rediscovering, Don Bowles, a murder journalist. There was no rush to judgment, no
1: rush to prosecution. We wanted to do it right. And there was no reason not to get the right people. So we tried to uncover every rock we could and wherever it went, it went.
0: Bowles' picture hangs in the Arizona Republic newsroom. I've seen it every day. Though in the last few months, as I've been reporting this story, I've seen it with new eyes.
3: But the most, I miss physically having him. We had so much fun doing things, and I haven't felt that way since.
0: Rediscovering Don Bowles, a murder journalist, was reported and voiced by me, Richard Rellis. Taylor Seeley is the lead producer. Katie O'Connell is the executive producer. Script supervision came from Sean McKinnon and Josh Susong. Web design for the project came from John Paul McDonald. Social media was led by Danielle Woodward with help from Grace Palmieri. Special thanks to Kayla White, Maritza Dominguez and Will Flanagan for their support. Kim Bowie provided research assistance, cassette repair and digitization by on-site video in Tempe, additional audio courtesy of the Arizona State Library Archives. John Adams is our Senior Director for Storytelling and Innovation. Greg Burton is our Executive Editor.